Hey guys, uh, today I'm excited to have uh, Dr. April Staples back with me. Uh, we had an episode a while back um, about raising your kids after deconstruction. So if you want to go back and listen to that, but um, you want to give your give your little intro again for those who had sure. listened to the episode. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Dr. April Staples. Um, I'm currently a provisionally licensed psychologist uh, here in Texas, and I work with a variety of populations, primarily doing diagnosing um, and a little bit of therapy. So that's me. great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I thought today we'd talk about um, mental illness and psychology at large. Um, and uh, me and April were both diagnosed with ADHD at some point. So I thought we'd kind of tell our story growing up, what that, what that was like. If you want to go ahead yeah. and start. <laughs> Sure. Um, so I actually wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until later in life, um, as I was going through graduate school. And for me, uh, it kind of fits the, uh, you know, the idea that girls are tend to be diagnosed mm. a lot later than boys. And a lot of that is because our expression of the illness is very, a little bit different. Boys tend to be a little more rambunctious and uh, a little more outward, have a lot more outward behavior um, that is more noticed by teachers. Girls still have that outward behavior, but it tends to emerge as more like helping behavior. So like, can I help you erase the board? Can I help you pick up the crayons? Can I, uh, getting up out of your seat and, mm -hmm. and you know, just trying to be helpful kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, so, that, isn't it like, uh, guys tend to be ADHD and, and girls tend to be ADD. So like the hyperactive isn't as prevalent. Yeah. In I women. think I, you know, I don't, yeah, I couldn't say like offhand what the, the differences in percentages are, but I know that the hyperactivity that in boys and girls is presented differently. Mm. Um, so you might mm -hmm. see hyperactivity in girls, but you might not identify it as a problem behavior mm -hmm. because they're being helpful. Mm, you know, they're like cleaning up the classroom, mm -hmm. right. Versus <laughs> like disrupting other kids and throwing their chairs or, you know, throwing <laughs> mm -hmm. toys everywhere, or mm -hmm. dumping out crayons, you know, whatever. Um, so it's, it gets overlooked for a long time because it, they tend to engage in more, I hate to be more socially acceptable right, right. kind of mm -hmm. behaviors. And then if you are just the inattentive type, you don't have the hyperactivity, uh, then you definitely aren't really going to get noticed at all because mm -hmm. you're just kind of zoning out. You're in your mm -hmm. own head and uh, you're not bothering anybody, you know, mm -hmm. and so they can kind of fly under the radar for a long time. For me, um, my intelligence helped me to do well in school, mm. even though I really struggled with keeping track of paperwork, mm -hmm. keep, keeping track of my homework, uh, you know, knowing, um, you know, where to turn things in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but on test day, um, I, you know, I was smart enough that I could, I could do well enough to pass the class. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I never studied, for anything ever. <laughs> I would just never took any mm -hmm. notes. Um, I studied, but it was always like last minute because my long-term memory yeah. was just not there. Yeah, exactly. It, it was like more cramming, you know, mm -hmm. it was like pulling all-nighters 
a lot of procrastination, a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, waiting till the last minute. And, you know, always in school, it was like, I was smart enough to hang out with like the group of kids that were considered the smart kids. Mm -hmm. But then also there was always a part of me that was like, why can't I keep up with them? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I should be able to like do the things that they're doing. And I never realized that it was because I had this executive functioning difficulty where they could sit down and study and keep track of their paperwork. And um, they could read something and not like, start wandering off in the middle while they're reading their textbook <laughs> mm-hmm. and be like, Oh my gosh, what did I just mm-hmm. read? And then have to read it again. Oh my gosh, what did I just read? You know, you know, for, um, for me, and- it was funny when I, when I read um, out loud, my, I read really fast when, when I read just to myself. And so my brain starts to read ahead and then I'm trying to, you know, say it slower and, and then I can get garbled. And that's the same thing when I'm writing, I'm thinking ahead. And so then, my hand starts trying to write letters that are ahead of where I'm at. And it's just gotcha. looks like a mess. <laughs> yeah. And then before you know it, you're tripping over yourself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But in terms, so in school, that's, you know, that's what it was like. It was, uh, it was difficult to, to stay on top of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I wanted to go to college. And so, um, you know, cause I grew up on the reservation and I just really wanted to get off the reservation. Mm. I was like, I, this is mm-hmm. my way right. to leave and, and experience something different. So this was like my ticket. So I had a, a good motivation to like try, but it was still really hard. And, you know, some of the, the silly things that I did that, you know, now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, that was totally my ADHD. Like, you know, I don't know how many times my dad had to come jump my car because I left my car lights on when I was, <laughs> when I would drive to school, mm-hmm. you know, uh, losing my keys, mm-hmm. um, you know, just forgetting appointments, showing up late, not having any kind of like time, like understanding of time. It was like, this time blindness just right. constantly, mm-hmm. you know, was after me. So when I got into my doctorate program, um, I was able to do pretty much the same thing through my undergrad and my master's degree where I could, I could write all, I could pull an all nighter and write a 10 page paper and it was, it mm-hmm. was fine. Uh, and then once I got to, you know, my doctorate program, and really getting into writing my dissertation, it was like, okay, well, you have like 10 years to finish this if you need to. And I'm like, this is never going to get done. Mm-hmm. And then it was like this mountain that all I could see were mm-hmm. all of these pieces that I had to put mm-hmm. together. Like, okay, we want you to develop research questions and methodology. And what's your methodology? And you need to go mm-hmm. through all this literature. And it was just a lot. And then, while you're trying to plan which your brain struggles with if you have ADHD is like knowing where to start mm-hmm. um you just get into this paralysis this if hard time breaking paralysis. things down right yeah oh. uh and so at that point I was like something is wrong like I cannot compel myself to do this task uh so I went and I got tested by you know a psychologist and they're like yeah I definitely have ADHD based on your your history and um you know, what, what I was experiencing. So I ended up um, getting on meds, you know, they put me on a really low dose of Adderall. And I remember the first time I took it, I was like, Oh, like I can actually like read an email <laughs> without the like, getting distracted in the mm-hmm. middle of it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, keeping track of 
things that I needed to get done and, and just my executive functioning in general, just it became clear how much of a problem my executive functioning was prior, you know, because I have three kids and, you know, I'm also working teaching and, and I started to lose my ability to manage like my laundry and make sure I had groceries Mm -hmm. in the refrigerator. And what am I going to cook for dinner and never having gas in my car and forgetting to pay this bill or forgetting to go on that appointment. And so your, your daily living becomes unmanageable. So at that Mm. point, uh, yeah, I, I realized why. So it's been life-changing. I mean, it's completely helped me one to have more, uh, grace towards myself when I recognize mm. that I'm overstimulated, that mm-hmm. I need to take a step back and mostly knowing when I need to ask for help. I'm a mm. very hyper independent person. Right. And I think for me, like my biggest, the biggest awareness I had was like, you need to ask for help. If you need mm-hmm. help, you got to ask for help. Mm-hmm. So I definitely am lucky to have, you know, my husband who I always call him like he's he's part of my executive functioning, uh, <laughs> you know, just rem- <laughs> reminding mm-hmm. me like he'll put gas in my car because he knows I'll forget, you know, things like that. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like my journey in terms of getting my diagnosis. It was later, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, is not not surprising either being somebody from the reservation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous person. I'm 39, so at that point in time, it was not something that wasn't was as big necessarily. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't really believed to be a, a real condition. It was a right. lot of it was like, ah, oh, it's just a bratty kid. Only bratty kids, mm-hmm. you know, have have that mm-hmm. condition. Um, and so, yeah. Did you get um? Like, did you get like flack from teachers or pa- your parents? And did that mess with you, like your self image? Uh, after I got the diagnosis? No, before, just before. like growing up, struggling and to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, ADHD and, you know, neurodivergency is really has a huge genetic component to it. Um, and so I'm pretty sure my mom, you know, she has undiagnosed um, ADHD. So she had a lot of the same um, kind of behaviors and things like that, difficulty keeping track, you know, sometimes. Mm. And so thankfully, I, you know, my parents were very um, understanding and accommodating. They, they really didn't give me a hard time about struggling when I was struggling. They were like, just do your best. You know, you're doing, you're doing the best you can. They could tell that I was trying. They knew I wanted to go to college. Um, and so thankfully from them, I, I really didn't experience a lot of negative um, interaction regarding my performance or anything like that. Mm. But it definitely was like, ah, you know, why, why do you have a difficult time with, you know, turning your lights off on your car? Why do you Mm -hmm. keep losing your keys or breaking your glasses or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. But, um, I, you know, it wasn't anything that negatively impacted my self-esteem or, Mm -hmm. or thankfully, you know, Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your your diagnosis. Like earlier, right? No, actually, it was it was in uh, college, so maybe it's like oh, it slightly younger, but yeah, it was okay. still pretty late. Um, so when I was young, my mom she babysit a bunch of kids, and I think I enjoyed that. But after a while, I think it overstimulated me, and then like throw fit or or something, it would just be too much energy, and um, my mom didn't understand that, and I would get spanking stuff like that. Um, so I think that was like the, the, the start of it. Um, but then I, I was homeschooled actually. Um, but I really struggled 
just like sitting still. My mom actually got me um, like one of those old school like desks. It's just really heavy. And it was still yeah. like throw myself out of that. Like <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a big struggle. Um, yeah. And then uh, I struggled actually learning to read, but then I took like, what was it? A Beck or something like that. And it was like really hard. But once I learned, then it's like I hyper-focus on that. Like I, I got into reading and I loved it, which is very unusual for kids who have ADHD actually. Um, yeah. And I think like you said, I think my intelligence definitely helped me get by. And, um, yeah. and then I started going to private school. and But the private school was only you go two days a week and you have homeschool three days. So it was kind of like a slow process. And then in high school, I started going to public school. So I slowly got simulated into five days a week, you know, eight hours of school. Right. Um, but uh, in junior high, yeah, I was super unorganized. And even I had to learn in high school to get more organized because I would just like stuff all my papers in my backpack and they wouldn't be like in their binders mm -hmm. and, you know, I'd forget like assignments and when they're due and all that stuff. And yeah, what I enjoyed, I could focus on, but what I didn't enjoy, it was really hard to focus. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, you know, I loved music so mm -hmm. much. I was always my grandfather's musician, you know, and then I started playing music in church, you know, growing up, learning how to play all the instruments. And so I knew when I went to get my undergrad that I wanted to at least have a music minor mm. and I loved the music part of it, getting to play the guitar, getting to play the piano, mm -hmm. but requirement of the program was you had to do ear training and mm -hmm. ear training is where you hear a melody and you have to write it down on you mm. know, a piece of paper mm -hmm. just by hearing it. Oh, wow. And the only way to really get good at that is just to listen to intervals, music intervals a lot. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just a lot of practice. A lot of, it's like a lot of repetitive, just repetitive, yeah. repetitive. And I failed mm -hmm. that class, I think like three <laughs> times because <laughs> wow. I just like could not, I just mm -hmm. could not get my brain to want to do it. I just didn't want mm -hmm. to do it. And, right. and nothing, even though I knew I needed to do it mm -hmm. and I wanted to, uh, I, my there's just no dopamine involved there was no right. <laughs> yeah and my brain said nope we're not doing it so i was mm -hmm. one class short of getting a minor in music uh wow. because i couldn't finish that class mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah what i've noticed about myself and maybe this is maybe this is an adhd thing but i'm a big picture person rather than like detail person and details it's just really hard for me to um focus and get into as much um and you yeah, the imagination and the creativity. So like I was really into English. I was, history was, was pretty cool. Um, but like science, it was, it was no details and it didn't feel yeah. creative to me. And um, math was okay. I, I liked it to some degree, but um, it wasn't, wasn't huge into it. Um, but yeah, more like stories and the psychology and the imagination, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. That's what, that's what really drew me in. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, you know, I've, I've, 
it's interesting with neurodivergent people. I think we almost have this, this beacon that draws us to each other where it's like, <laughs> we get this sense of like, Oh, I think you're, you're one of me. You know, <laughs> you're I <one> think <laughs> you're one of us. Um, I found that, uh, you know, most of my friends are neurodivergent without even like recognizing mm-hmm. that we were kind of connecting because our experiences mm-hmm. were similar and we tend to all be very connected to spirituality, mm. connected to creativity, you mm-hmm. know, so um, different, different forms of expressing that, you know, I have mm-hmm. friends who are artists and photographers and um, singers and musicians, and uh, they just seem to be a little more connected to that creative interconnectedness mm-hmm. part of you know, their brains. And mm-hmm. so I've often wondered, like, I wonder if, you know, neurodivergency, you know, people with the neurodivergence, you know, they just have such a strong sensory experience that mm. I feel like makes me feel more connected to God, you know, mm. to like, uh, uh, the energy in the universe or mm. like something bigger than myself. It's like, mm-hmm. I can feel, I can feel music in my body mm-hmm. and, to me, it was always a way for me to connect to God was like, man, this is something I don't know how to describe this feeling of mm-hmm. like feeling vibration in my body. You know, it's like mm. I can feel warmth, right. I feel like to a different degree when I'm out in the mm-hmm. sun, um, you know, and I can taste food differently because my sensory mm. experience is like very heightened compared mm-hmm. to a lot of people who aren't neurodivergent and Mm -hmm. I feel like that made me more connected to like the unseen, you know, realm of things Mm -hmm. uh, that are happening. So do you feel like uh, non-divergent neurodivergent people, could they perhaps be experiencing it is extreme? They're just not as expressive about it. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's a good question. Like my husband is like almost like a, a science project to me because he's not neurodivergent. And so I'm <laughs> uh-huh. always just observing him like in his world. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I asked him like, what are you thinking? You know, I think we were, we were just, he was just being really quiet. He just mm-hmm. wasn't saying anything. He's like, mm-hmm. he's kind of, he's introverted. Um, but I was just like, what are you thinking about? And he's like, Oh, nothing. And I'm like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's <laughs> always know? a meme about like girls versus guys, but I, yeah. I feel like I'm always thinking about something too. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm just not thinking about anything. I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, looking out at the, at the yard, you know, mm-hmm. just looking at the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, it was just like mind blown to me that like he has these periods of like just being, mm-hmm. just the experience of being where it's mm-hmm. not. Uh, trying to answer a question or, mm-hmm. or thinking through these really deep topics, you know, mm-hmm. it's like he just can experience, but he also doesn't seem to express his experience as um, openly or uh, as deeply, I think, as mm-hmm. a lot of people who I, who are around me, obviously this is all anecdotal mm-hmm. people I've been around, but right. uh, it feels like people who are more, neurodivergent tend to be able to express their, uh-huh. their emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. A little more I think it's like a, it's almost like a survival thing. It's like, because uh, my brain felt like chaos and, and a lot of emotions, a lot of thoughts I needed to be able to learn to process and 
and and observe these things so and make sense of them so that I could function. And so yeah. that helps us then be able to express it better um, and think about it more maybe than, than non-neurodivergent people, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's just difficult. We just never know what somebody's, you know, phenomenal experience is, right? Mm. Uh, their their lived experience, you know, what it's like to taste, touch, smell, mm. see, hear. Uh, we just are never going to know what that's like for another right. person. Mm-hmm. They have to tell us mm-hmm. what that's like for them. But it's also all, it's awesome. It's like we're all experiencing the world in different ways. <laughs> yeah, very, very different ways. Mm-hmm. So but even, similar even too. Husband, yeah, uh, even my husband will tell me, he's like, you're just, you feel so deeply. Like you just, mm-hmm. you, you care so deeply. You feel so deeply, I, you know. Uh, and you see that in a lot of you know, neurodivergent, when you look at children, uh, children who are neurodivergent, um, you know, they have a big emotional reaction they have big emotions you know Mm. they get they they get angry maybe really quickly or they get excited Mm. they also get happy and excited really quickly so uh their emotional regulation can be Mm. difficult to manage Mm -hmm. sometimes and bringing it back down can be difficult regulating it can be Mm -hmm. difficult Mm -hmm. um so it feels like they experience emotions to a greater degree than people Mm -hmm. who can regulate it a little bit Mm -hmm better you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah well speaking of adhd uh back to <laughs> my story yeah uh, no, that was great um uh, but yeah college is um i it was my senior year and i had a big research project kind of like what you're saying well i mean not to that same degree because um, i've been to grad school and i know how much uh, bigger it gets uh the projects and stuff like that but um for for, for me at that time um it was a lot. And, um, I kind of got into that, um, freeze and that procrastination. And I had so much anxiety and I even developed like a shake in my hands. Like (laughs) I was at a bad state. And so I started going to counseling to, to try to manage that. And, um, but, but I also got diagnosed, um, with ADHD and I started, I started with Ritalin, but I didn't like the way that it made me feel. So I did, uh, start taking Adderall and, Mm -hmm. I did think it helped some, but it was kind of weird. I felt like it almost, I felt like a lot of times I struggle with energy. It's like I had a lot of energy, but I was like burning a lot because I was like thinking and feeling so much. I think it was like using so much energy. So I felt exhausted a lot. And I feel like that was part of why it was hard for me to focus. Um, And so I felt like the Adderall gave me more energy and then I could focus because of that. Not that it necessarily made me, more focused on its own, if that makes any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think that leads us, um, it's a good segue into the conversation we want to have today, which is really about DSM, you know, mm-hmm. and diagnosing. And for those who aren't familiar with what the DSM is, it's our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. And it's the primary text that we use, I don't even know if it's, we call it a text, but it's the, you know, it's manual. the book that we yeah, use, yeah. the manual that we use uh, to diagnose and really, you know, file insurance uh, for people who are getting treatment. Um, and so that kind of leads a good segue into medication, right? Um, mm-hmm. You started off with one and then 
um, tried another one, you felt like, you know, it helped you a little bit. I started off with Adderall, you know, extended release, a mm -hmm. small dose, um, the smallest dose, you know, that they have. And, um, that helped me. And then they increased it just a little bit. Um, still a low dose, like 10 milligrams, you know, very mm -hmm. low. I think I was um, doing 20. Was, yeah. And that was enough for me to, mm -hmm. to, to be able to, you know, get some help. Um, but the thing with, and one of the criticisms you'll hear about ADHD, cause there's a lot of people right now who there seems to be two camps. There's like the, the anti-psychiatry psychology camp who are mm -hmm. like anti-diagnoses, anti-medication. And then there's, you know, the other camp, I guess, that maybe encompasses mm -hmm. everybody that's not anti. But uh, Adderall and, you know, um, all of, you know, Vivance and Ritalin, you know, they're, they're going to show improvement for most people, even in people who don't have ADHD. So that one of the criticism is, uh, anybody can take it and they're going to, they're mm -hmm. going to report feeling better because it, mm -hmm. it's a stimulant that's mm -hmm. going to give you energy. That's going to make you feel focused, you know, even if you don't have ADHD. Mm -hmm. And so this is where, yeah, that can be, that can be true that it is going to make everybody else feel better. Mm -hmm. We also have to, but it'll also to have a, a extreme reaction is like my, my brother said he took a pill once because yeah. he had like a big project. Um, right. I think, I think it'd be fine with me saying this, but, uh, yeah. but, but he, he's like, I didn't eat. I wasn't hungry. I was super annoyed if anybody interrupted me and I stayed up like all night. <laughs> it was just, yeah. Yeah. just like just doing my work. Right. And there are first, yeah, for sure. For some people, the stimulants just going to make them really agitated, you know, really uncomfortable, mm. really, you know, heart palpitations, stuff like that. Um, but it's one of those things where when it comes to medications, one, that's why we go to a psychiatrist who is trained on how to navigate managing these um, medications and how much of the medications and changing the medications, because really at the end of the day, we can't give each individual patient a blood test to determine what medication mm -hmm. is going to work best for mm -hmm. their neurotransmitters, right? For, right. We don't really know what brain, you know, chemicals need to be adjusted in your particular brain. Mm -hmm. And so it does come down to let's give this a try and mm -hmm. see if it improves your daily living. And if it doesn't, let's talk about it and follow up and we'll readjust and let's mm -hmm. talk about it and follow up. So getting a doctor that you're comfortable having these conversations with so that you can make adjustments, that's really what you're looking for. It, you know, mm -hmm. it's rare that you're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to get on these meds and it's going to make me feel better. And that's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, yeah, it, it's a complicated process, right? I, I I think you know it's been it's been cool to learn a little bit about neuroscience and, and neuroscience is kind of you, you know we learned a lot more and it, it's uh, risen in popularity. I guess what I'm trying to say, um, but it kind of goes with the um, materialism, physicalist mindset versus mm -hmm. not, um, and just that like we can understand and also like our identity, who we are is based on like our, just our brain and our brain chemicals. But, um, I think you and I are both on the camp of it's more complicated than that. We can't understand and it's more, yeah, diversity and uniqueness and a lot of things we don't understand. So not everything can be boiled down to like an, a, a chemical 
mathematical equation that can understand us. Right. So it's the difference between having this kind of deterministic kind of view of humans where it's like, well, if you have this much dopamine or this much serotonin or this much oxytocin, then you're going to have this experience. Mm -hmm. We just, we don't know that uh, Mm -hmm. because everybody's experience is so different. I like to think about our brain chemicals in terms of, uh, I think the best way to understand it is like love. So even though we know what chemicals are involved in bonding, like what neurotransmitters Mm. are involved in bonding, humans bonding, right? Um, Just because we know that, it doesn't make the experience of love any less meaningful or valuable or, um, you know, transcendent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so knowledge about, these chemicals and how they contribute to our emotions doesn't negate the reality and the impact of those emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing is like, you know, some people like to want to ignore the, the, the science of, well, no, it's not just this chemical or it's not just that chemical. Well, it, it's, it's both, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's the chemical and then it's our assessment or our evaluation of, what that feels like, like there's mm-hmm. something there that tells us this feels good and, and we like it and mm-hmm. we want to keep hanging out with this person or keep doing this thing or mm-hmm. whatever that might be. But sometimes those brain chemicals can, um, you know, we can get too much of them or too little mm-hmm. of them and, mm-hmm. and we need medication to help manage that so that our daily experiences are not difficult Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think a, a good way to think about it is kind of a both and. So, you know, yes. obviously our brain chemicals affect us and they can be off and we can um, take meds or take vitamins or whatever, do things um, to, to alter those chemicals. But also I think that, you know, our thoughts and emotions, we can work with those and, you know, do like therapy as well to, mm-hmm. Uh, that that will alter these chemicals naturally in, in that way. Um, Correct. Yeah. yeah. And there's some people who can increase the amount of dopamine that they have by doing things like working out or mm-hmm. uh, hanging out with friends or sunlight. They're yeah. right. What you know, mm-hmm. sunlight. Uh, mm-hmm. Getting in, you know, uh, ice water. Right. Doing an ice mm-hmm. bath or you know, cold mm-hmm. water, but their baseline level of dopamine is going to be higher than somebody who, you know, has a a mental health condition where their baseline dopamine is a lot lower. So Mm -hmm. even if they do get in the sunlight and they do get in cold water and they do Mm -hmm. everything right, they do all these behaviors that everybody tells them to do, they're still going to not feel good Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's still not bringing their, that chemical, that dopamine up, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever chemical they need to bring up, it's not bringing it up to a level that is going to help them to function every day. Mm-hmm. So we see that with, you know, for example, there's depression that is treatment resistant, right? It's like, no matter what mm-hmm. this person does, even with medication, even with changing their lifestyle, no matter what they do, you know, they can't get their brain chemicals to a baseline that's going to allow them to feel mm-hmm. good, to feel right. better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of different things that treatment options for the non-resistant or the treatment-resistant mm-hmm. depression, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not as simple as just 
doing meditation or mm-hmm. working out or going mm-hmm. for a walk or yeah i, I think that's that. where the the spiritual part comes like psychology is great and it's helpful but the spiritual part too if someone doesn't um have a reason for living then it doesn't matter what they're going to do it's not it's not going to help you know so yeah. you, you could talk about like maslow's hierarchy of needs is self-transcendence or just yeah, yeah. all those 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 things are very important and impact everything else. Mm-hmm. So when we think about uh, mental health conditions, um, you know, we want to think about them not as just chemicals, not just as biological, but we also want to think about the social determinants, right? Also, uh, what kind of environment is this person living in? What kind of people uh, mm-hmm. are is this person surrounding themselves with? Um, what kind of content are they consuming? You know, is it making them feel worse? Are they, if you're watching the news every single day, right? right? I mean, that's, that's going to make you feel pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so our mental health conditions, really, you want to look at multiple areas Angles. of experience. Mm-hmm. You wanna, yeah. You got to look at the biology. Of course you want to look at the, the social interactions and then the individual psychology. So your individual thoughts and experience mm-hmm. of your environment of what you're experiencing, how do you make meaning out of that experience? So perfect example, you know, if you look at schizophrenia, for example, we do know that schizophrenia has a very, um, high correlation, you know, it, it's related to your genetics, right? For many people, if, mm-hmm. if you have schizophrenia, it's very likely that somebody else in your family also experienced it. Um, so we've been able to correlate that with a lot of biology, but we also know that your relationships with your parents have a huge impact on that or your social, you know, interactions mm-hmm. have a huge mm-hmm. experience, uh, you know, impact on the the likelihood that you'll develop it and how serious it's going to be, how many symptoms you're going to experience, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So those all interact together to determine how you're, how you're going to experience schizophrenia. And Mm -hmm. so you might have a biological predisposition to get schizophrenia, but then you have a great relationship with your parents. They're supportive. They're helping you with your treatment management and the way you think about it, your individual psychology is you've learned to think about your hallucinations, auditory or visual in a positive way. So you're not um, distressed when you have them. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about them in maybe they're helpful. That's know, what I was going to uh, say. Auditory I, I... And hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these people, you know, if, if that's the experience where all three of these factors are positive, mm-hmm. that person's probably going to be fine and have a positive mm-hmm. experience, you know? Yeah. I think so much. And, and... And I haven't thought out a, a good way of saying, so I'm going to do my best, but just yeah. what, um, what comes into how we translate what, what's in our body, how we, how we feel that, how we think about that. Um, just like my old counselor would always say, uh, excitement and, um, anxiety is the same jittery feeling in the body. And so it's how we interpret that, that makes it helpful or harmful for us. And so if we can recognize that and learn to uh, recognize how we're, how we're interpreting it and then work with that to change that over time, if possible. No, I, I think that's exactly it. So, you know, for example, rec- and when 
when psychologists or therapists say, uh, I want you to feel it in your, where do you feel it in your body? Mm -hmm. right? and you mm -hmm. hear that a lot. Like you need to feel your emotion. Well, nobody really describes what that means, mm -hmm. but it's exactly what you're saying. It's, uh, what is my, am I experiencing like a rapid heartbeat? Am I experiencing like, um, you know, like a little bit of a, my stomach dropping, you know, mm -hmm. where, uh, I kind of feel like, Oh, I'm a little embarrassed, you know, and how am I interpreting that feeling? Um, so you will feel these physiological changes in your body. And when you can recognize those changes and what they're connected to, then you can interpret what those mean. So like you said, uh, excitement and fear will, have very similar physiological expressions in the body. It's mm -hmm. both going to have like a, a racing heart. It's going to be mm -hmm. adrenaline for both, right? Mm -hmm. So adrenaline is going to lead to the same body reactions, but your assessment or your perception of those body, you know, ex reactions are going to be dependent on the environment that you're in and what you're experiencing. But sometimes it's very confusing because if, you could be sitting somewhere and suddenly you're having like a racing heart and your palms are getting sweaty. You're having all this adrenaline, but there's nothing going on. And then we might call that a panic attack. Right. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so being really aware of your body states and what does it feel like when I'm relaxed? What does it feel like mm -hmm. when I'm hungry? What does it feel like when I'm tired? What does it feel like when I'm excited? That can help give you some good information for what you're experiencing emotionally. So a lot of times you could feel like you're angry, but you're really hungry. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and so mm. it's like, Oh, okay. I'm not actually angry right now. I just I actually just need to eat because my blood sugar is low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? um, and I think a lot of people don't have a good handle on wh what their internal experiences are. Right. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, well, I appreciate psychology that I think that they've improved a lot in in becoming aware of the somatic elements um, and importance of and then practices. I think that, um, you know, we talked about earlier before the, the episode talking about multiculturalism and the Eastern perspective. And so so like um, yoga and meditation and these different things to get in touch with the body. Uh, that's all become and I think like uh, EDMR is, is, is a common psychology, a practice that, uh, is a part of that. And so, um, you know, talk therapy is important and it's helpful and it's good and I've benefited from it. But also the first thing that I did, um, when I got on therapy was learn meditation and that helped me get in touch with my body and deal with my anxiety and, um, come back down to the earth. Um, right. So a know. lot of the more somatic, Right. therapies where you're tuning in, to, you're becoming embodied, right? You're mm -hmm. tuning into what's happening with your body. That My dissertation was focused on indigenous mental health. And one of the things we see with the indigenous population is a lot of dissociation. Mm -hmm. And they experience high levels of dissociation because of so much trauma. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma that's being experienced. So a lot of violence, domestic violence, substance abuse. Um, and so a lot of the people are exposed to traumatic events throughout their mm -hmm. lives and the way that many of them cope, like any other population, you know, most, pop most people who experience trauma will 
dissociate to mm-hmm. survive. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens though is there's kind of this, you know, persistent state of dissociation. And so the treatment for a lot of people in trauma is somatic work. It's Mm -hmm. let me teach you how to breathe and how to calm your nervous system down, how to regulate your nervous system and try to get you used to what that feels like. Because when your nervous system is in a state of heightened reactivity, like it's in fight or flight all the time, you're not going to really be comfortable in a relaxed state. Once you get into a relaxed state, that's going to feel very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because you're not used to it. So a lot of the therapy for a lot of people who have experienced trauma is uh, let's learn how to get comfortable with being in a a regulated nervous system state. And Mm -hmm. like you said, I agree. Yoga is a amazing practice for getting yoked to the body, which is what yoga means, right? Being embodied, getting used to breathing, being in these, uh, you know, different positions and mm-hmm. identifying where am I feeling pain? Where am I feeling discomfort? Where am I feeling relaxed? At what point do I feel my body relax? Uh, and so talk therapy really isn't necessarily the best route to go when you're first getting therapy for trauma, really intense mm-hmm. trauma. A lot of it is, uh, let's get you back in tune with what's happening in your body. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'll start a question about ADHD. What do you think some of the causes are? Do you, do you know uh, Gaber Mate? Yeah, I know yeah, he's yeah. like really controversial. So I think yeah. his take is um, that it has a lot has a lot to do with with trauma. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think that there is a lot of research uh, that <laughs> is, that really demonstrates that it is a you know a neurodevelopmental condition, which means the wiring of the brain is Mm. different. You know, Mm -hmm. it it is divergent from the norm. So, Mm -hmm. so like nature more than nurture. Right. And as, as far as nature versus nurture, I don't want to be deterministic about it and say that, you know, if you have this gene, then for sure X, Y, and Z, but there are certain genes that predispose us to experience our sensory experience in a certain way. So Mm. if you are more predisposed to be sensitive to light and sound and touch and taste, Mm -hmm. then you're going to react to that appropriately. And that's going to wire your brain in a specific way. Now, if somebody is in a traumatic situation as a child and they aren't predisposed to Uh, you know, ADHD, they can also wire their brains in the same way as somebody who has ADHD, Mm -hmm. who was born with that genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, it's always both and, right? Mm -hmm. There are people who are, have a genetic predisposition to neurodivergency, and there are people who grow up in probably very traumatic childhood experiences where there's adults yelling or, you know, gunshots going off, Mm -hmm. or you know, there's a lot of instability in their environment. And so they react to those environments accordingly. Mm -hmm. And then their brain wires things 
like hypervigilance and distractibility and it has a difficult time with executive functioning Mm -hmm. because the environment that they grew up in that their brain was developing in was chaotic Mm -hmm. and so the treatment for both of those people will be the same right uh Mm -hmm. and somebody who grows up in that environment and displays the same symptoms as somebody who maybe has a genetic predisposition we're not going to know the difference we're not going to be able to untangle that it's impossible Mm -hmm. to untangle Uh, But I think it's safe to say that, yeah, there's probably some people who it is really just PTSD, you know, that is uh, showing those symptoms. And there are some people who really are born with that genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. because we do see many people with ADHD who are not, who have a very secure, safe home environment. Mm -hmm. They are getting all the supports that they need. Uh, there's no trauma or anything like that. And they, they have executive functioning difficulty mm-hmm. and they're not coming from a traumatic experience. So um, yeah, it's both. And mm-hmm. right. Yeah. yeah it, it was funny. Cause um, I feel like I noticed as I got into grad school um, with my anxiety and I think it had a lot to do with like self-worth and, and belief that I could do things and um and that um as i yeah the the more i worked on on my self image and anxiety that that started to help with being able to focus it was the that that my focus is very highly tied to my emotional state i guess what i'm trying to say um and the better emotional state i had the, the better able i was able to focus um but i think right. um and and if i already kind of talked about um, my story and and mm-hmm. the awakening and the mania and um, the spiritual emergencies we we talked about with Jan Holden, um, right? And then I was diagnosed with bipolar and then I was on meds. I think after that experience, my brain slowed down a lot. And after I got off of meds for bipolar, I've never been on meds again, so I haven't been on Adderall. And yeah. you know, I, I I still you know I still definitely see some ADHD traits, and it's still maybe not the easiest thing for me. I am a lot more organized now. I feel like my brain is slowed down a lot less anxiety and my self image is better. And so I don't necessarily think of myself as like ADHD and, and that it, mm-hmm. it's the same as when I was younger. Um, so I don't know yeah. I, I yeah. how I kind of see it to me is like, I, I believe you and I agree that, that people can be born with, with ADHD and, and, the certain, you know, executive function issues. But I think that, um, yeah, we, we can do things and not just find ways of coping, but also ways of improving to where maybe that diagnosis doesn't fit or maybe it fits less. And so there's a range of, I, I think that mental illness, the way the language sometimes can be often that it's like, hey, if you have this mental illness, you can only, we'll just try to get you to baseline health and and that's the best we can hope for. But it's like, I think we can also thrive in, and, you know, so it's a wide spectrum, which we have the capability of operating in. And then also like if something, um, it, life gets hard, then maybe we like fall back into that. Um, so, yeah. 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 No, a hundred percent. And I think that is one of the things 
that we do when we're have a patient come in and they're trying to figure out why am I struggling with my daily living, right? I'm, I'm really struggling to navigate my life. There's an overlap of a lot of conditions that, I mean, any mental health condition is going to really lead to executive dysfunction. That's why you're coming in to figure out what's happening. It's because you're having difficulty planning out your daily life or critical thinking or, you know, managing all of these things that you have to manage. So when we look at it, you know, we're looking at, is this depression? Is this anxiety? Is this ADHD? Is this PTSD? Is this bipolar disorder? Is this, you know, so we're trying to really differentiate, which is, you know, what we call it a differential diagnosis is like, we're Mm -hmm. trying to really untangle a lot of these symptoms into uh, something that can most match what you're telling me your experience is. Mm -hmm. So it might not be perfect. You know, it might not be um, the best explanation for your experience from your perspective, but it's the best one we have with the literature that we have and and with the manual that we have. Mm -hmm. And the goal is that we don't want the patient to necessarily identify with this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Like that's their identity. That's who they are. That's their idea. Like I am a person who's X, Y, Z. What we want to say is we want to affirm their experience and say, okay, yeah, it looks like based on what you're telling me, you're experiencing some depression and let's Mm -hmm. work through where we think that's coming from, you know, and then that's when we can start to work through the biology, which was where medication will come in, work through their environment and the, you know, they're experiencing in their environment and then work through their, through their thinking, which is what we will do in talk therapy, right? Mm -hmm. You might do Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic therapy, however you want to do that. But the goal is to try to, figure out what is it that's kind of leading to this thing. So I would say the, the diagnosis part is really just the start of trying to understand what this person is experiencing. It doesn't even tell the story of what's happening or why it's happening or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny. We've seen the, the, the swing of extremes as far as like, yeah. you know, the older population having a stigma about mental illness and not wanting to um, delve into that or be diagnosed with that or anything like, like that. Just think it's crazy. And then we see the opposite side, Gen Z is kind of getting into the, the pop culture of it and, and like wanting to be diagnosed, but also maybe not um, understanding it or, uh, over diagnosing it, diagnosing with yeah. it, or or seeing that as their identity. And I, I think there are people who are rightfully concerned about the fact that we we are, I think, moving into a place where we are, um, you know, pathologizing right. typical human for. experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, puberty is uncomfortable, you know, (laughs) it's, I don't know a single human that goes through puberty that doesn't have anxiety, right. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, retiring, you know, life changes, going through divorce, experiencing a death, um, 
having people ending a friendship, you know, Mm -hmm. these are all human experiences that are hard, you know, being disappointed. Um, And I think that we, our tolerance towards distress feels as if it has really lessened, you know, Mm. in our Mm -hmm. effort to acknowledge that these things are painful, we've almost decreased our ability to handle the pain Mm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of that is really, I don't think that that applies globally. I think Mm -hmm. that tends to be more, uh, you know, a Western experience, especially here Mm -hmm. in the United States. For the most part, we're not exposed to suffering to the same degree as people around the globe. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not seeing death around us all the time. We're not seeing like excessive extreme illness and um, poverty and, you know, things like to the degree that they are in other parts of the world. And so our, our tolerance for those things is a lot lower than, Mm -hmm. you know, probably a lot of people across the globe where, uh, I think we're trying to figure out how to do, how to honor the fact that, yeah, it's hard to be human. Also, we don't want to say that being human is a psychological, you know, mental health disorder. Right. I think, (laughs) uh, and just, just a theory of thinking about it. Um, I think we're, we're not experiencing those things as much as you could say as other countries, perhaps, um, but we're exposed to that. So we see it on TV or mm-hmm. on movies or different things. And so, and, and we see it a lot, you know, I think we're inundated with technology. And so I think yeah. maybe actually the secondhand exposure in a way might be worse for our health that we're not getting the, how do you say it? The benefits of actually going through that and getting the nuggets of the the benefits or, or the, the, the strength, the yeah. mental fortitude, emotional fortitude. Um, and so we just see those things and it's affecting us. And so it's actually affecting us in a, in a worse way, <laughs> perhaps yeah. in that respect, not that, you know, going through those things would be, would be very, very hard. And so I'm not trying to diminish that at all, but that's right. just, what do you think about that? Well, I think, yeah, I, I think when you, are able when you're walking through something difficult, um, you have time to really turn that experience into into something into wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you've kind of carried, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, from a Christian perspective, it's like you're carrying the cross, right? Mm. You are the one who's like carrying this burden, walking through it, walking through the fire, and and you get to figure out who you are in that that's where your character really shows through. It's like, am I going to, am I going to quit? Am I going to keep going? Am I going to learn from that? What, what's going to happen? We don't know. It's a mystery. We don't know how I'm going to handle this. But when we're just on social media and we're just witnessing horrific things uh, and then we shut it off, well, now we're just leaving our mind to come up with whatever kind of story it wants to mm. come up with. You know, it's a, it can almost be like we're experiencing this heightened arousal and cortisol and we can't do anything with it because there's no, 
there's nothing to run away from. We're in our living mm-hmm. room, <laughs> you know, or, or, or like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like we're in the situation where we're having to engage in some kind of action. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that has a significant impact on our nervous system and on our ability to feel peace and on our ability to navigate our stressors in a way that is healthy, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you think about it, like we haven't evolved a brain to take in the amount of information that we take in. Like we live, mm, right. we are now a global culture, you know, we're mm-hmm. connected globally and mm-hmm. there's never been a time in humanity that we've been connected globally. Mm-hmm. It's always been a small areas, small tribes, small communities, you know, but now we really are connected globally. And I think that creates a lot of discomfort for people who really want certainty. Like mm. I want to be able to pre- predict what's going right. to happen. I want to be able to know how somebody's going to behave. I mm-hmm. want to be able to make assessments about my safety and mm-hmm. If I'm connected to cultures all around the world, people all around the world, experiences all around the world, I can't predict anything. Mm-hmm. Because and also, know, like beliefs are different, and and yeah. or in language. Um, so yeah, feel more yeah. So so there's no there's no groundedness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The, there's a difficulty with feeling grounded, and so we actually, I think what we see a lot of times is when chaos is really high or when people feel out of control, you tend to see a lot of cults increase Mm. or conspiracy theories, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, people start to engage in like these more fantastic polarization, more extreme uh, views of the other side of the other side. Yeah. And it really, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's grasping at certainty of being able to predict what's mm-hmm. going to happen, being able to, uh, you know, and that makes them feel grounded, but it's, mm-hmm. it's an illusion as you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think that there's, it's multifaceted, but I think for people who have serious mental health conditions, uh, you know, who really do need these diagnoses, who do need the medication, um, mm-hmm. we're doing them a disservice by pathologizing typical human discomfort Mm -hmm. Um, because if we kind of go back to nothing is a problem if we Mm -hmm. say there's no mental illness that it's all environment that that the the reason these illnesses occur is simply because of the capitalistic society that we've created where people Mm -hmm. are expected to work ridiculous hours Mm -hmm. Um, yeah those are all true Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think the society we've created is not a uh, thriving, you know, for place where human psychology can thrive. But I also think that um, there are people who are not in that experience. They're not grounded to that reality and they need help at least grounding to that reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, yeah, there can be a, um, critics can say and I think they have some points that um the psychology is, is so focused on the individual that they ignore the cultural and you could put this in the DSM too that w- what I learned about the DSM is that a lot of times we're we're we see 
what 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 um why someone would be diagnosed with a mental illness is they meet this certain amount of symptoms but are people looking at the root of these symptoms like where they're coming from do they have just have a crazy traumatic experience and maybe they're experiencing these symptoms because of this experience and it's totally a normal thing um yeah but but again it can go the opposite way too like you're saying yeah well and i think the goal i think it's important to recognize the goal of the dsm right um so it, there are some people who you know absolutely want a particular diagnosis they're like i really want to get this diagnosis and it's like okay what is your goal mm-hmm. what it, what is this diagnosis you know what are you looking for are you looking for treatment are you looking for support are you looking like you just feel like you have been different and you want mm-hmm. an answer for that and you feel like this is the answer mm-hmm. um and so, some people maybe even use that as a way of an excuse to not do something yeah. or work on the do the work Right. Everybody has a different goal for why they mm-hmm. want, you know, if somebody comes in, they want a diagnosis or they want to get evaluated. It, you know, I'm always like, what brought you in? Like, what, mm-hmm. what is your goal with this you know, assessment? You know, mm-hmm. um, what are you hoping to learn or what are you hoping to understand about yourself? Um, and so it's really important to understand the goal of the patient right, and their experience and, um, and, for many people getting the diagnosis is life changing for them. It's like, man, mm-hmm. I've gone my whole life never understanding mm-hmm. like why I have this experience. And now I have language <laughs> that right. can explain it. Yeah. You know? I remember um, when, when I got diagnosed and, and it felt like that, like, Oh, I, I see what's happening or what's going on. And also it's like, a, Oh, other people are going through the same thing and they have the same issues. And so it's a camaraderie as well. But also I think the biggest thing is, okay, now that I have this diagnosis, what is the uh, research? What is the techniques to deal with this? And that's what's most important and what's most helpful. Uh, but after over time, I did feel like I don't want to, I guess, just immerse myself in this whole ADHD world to the extent that mm-hmm. I pathologize myself. And I'm like, oh, I'm just ADHD. So now, now I can't do this. And and then right. actually holds me back. So it it's kind of like personality tests. It's like, it, oh, there's a um, there's some labels. There's some um, I, I can be put in this box, and it's helpful, and it does help me understand myself. But also, I'm not just these. I'm more, and I can also grow to be more than that. So you don't want to get mm-hmm. stuck there either, right? And I think that's the really the important piece. I think. Uh, all the clinicians that I know, all the doctors I know, really try to impart that wisdom onto the patients of this doesn't define you. This mm-hmm. isn't who you are. Um, this is simply just giving you a name and some language to describe some of the experiences that you have. And so you might improve your condition to the point where maybe you're only having three of these experiences now instead of eight, you know, uh, you might improve it to where you're only, you're not having that many, right? Maybe you have a period where you found something that works for you and you're not experiencing these experiences in a negative, as negative as you were before. So Mm -hmm. if you were to come in again and 
tell me your symptoms, I wouldn't diagnose you with anxiety mm-hmm. because now you have it under control. But it's a matter of helping the patient to understand that their diagnosis doesn't define them, right? Um, and like you said, some of that is just dependent on the individual patient and how they are going to receive that information and how that information is meaningful to them. Um, it's just very unique to each mm-hmm. individual person. Right. Um, you know, I think like my job's different because I'm, I do clinical assessment. So my job is to diagnose. Uh, but I think for a lot of counselors, a lot of my friends who are LPCs or, you know, counselors, many of them don't even need to tell their patients what they're billing in terms of the, um, their diagnosis. Mm. You know, you want to talk a little bit about that? I don't think we've gone into that, like how that all works. Sure. Like how the diagnosing works. Right. And, uh, just the tie in with the insurance and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Uh, If a patient comes in, for example, to just for psychotherapy, in order for insurance to cover that, we have to give them a a code, a billing code. And the billing code is based on the the DSM, the manual. So they have to be diagnosed with a mental. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're going for therapy and you're using your insurance. We have to send the insurance something to justify the insurance paying for your therapy. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, there's many therapists who feel like that's unethical to just mm-hmm. give somebody a diagnosis on their first appointment. <laughs> um, and so for many of them, they don't take therapy because mm-hmm. they don't take insurance. Label. Yeah. Or take insurance. Yeah. Because they don't want to label patients with a mental health condition when patients are just coming in for, to get help with navigating their daily life of being human. Um, and so for many of them, they will tell their patients like, Hey, you know, this is for insurance. You know, you are experiencing a typical range of anxiety for Mm -hmm. this experience Mm -hmm. that you're having. For example, Mm -hmm. you're having grief. Right. And so luckily for that reason, you know, we do have billing codes in the, the manual for like adjustment disorder, and I think a lot of the patients will just be given an adjustment disorder, which is it's only going to last six months and you're just adjusting to something in your life right now. And it's giving you anxiety and we're trying to work through that. Um, but it is frustrating for the, the mental health clinicians who don't want to give everyday humans mental health mm-hmm. conditions because mm-hmm. it takes away from the people who have real serious, you know, mental health mm-hmm. disorders. Right. It kind of waters it down. Waters it down. And I think it just pathologizes again, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, a typical human experience. So Mm. there's a lot of criticism right now because the DSM was just updated and they added grief, prolonged grief uh, as Mm -hmm. a disorder. And so there's a lot of people who are upset about that. You know, how are you going to pathologize? What is a typical, what's the appropriate (laughs) amount of time for grief? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Like there's a standard. Right. And they found that for the people who have, prolonged grief a lot of times it's uh, a child has passed away which you would expect that would lead to a prolonged grief um or their significant other right so these are things that are typical you would expect somebody would struggle with that for a long time um and so yeah so and then for me as a psychologist uh people come in and they want to get a testing done to determine 
what is actually going on. So maybe they've they've tried a bunch of medications. Maybe they've been to therapy a whole bunch of times. Uh, there's there's a lot going on, a lot of symptoms, and they're not quite sure what the name of their symptom expression is because it is so overlapped with a lot of other conditions. And so they come to me and we try to give them some psychological testing. We try to untangle all of these symptoms to try to come up with a clear picture of what's happening and give them a diagnosis, a definitive diagnosis so that they can take that and try to get, you know, therapy, based on that diagnosis or get medication based on that diagnosis. And so for me, I do have to use, you know, obviously use the manual Mm -hmm. to be able to give them a definitive diagnosis and to be able Mm -hmm. to look at all of their symptoms and, and untangle them and figure that out. So that's kind of how that works with diagnosing Mm -hmm. and just your everyday therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think most people who are going to therapy though, are just humans trying to learn coping skills, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to learn a little bit about their emotional experience. Uh, Most of them don't really have pathology, um, even though Mm. they're being diagnosed with Mm -hmm. pathology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, I read a stat that says that 80% of uh, meds are given by physicians, not even even psychiatrists, not even psychologists, but doctors and they might not really have much actual training about that. Yeah. I am not a medical doctor, obviously. <laughs> I'm a psychologist, but I do know that, yes, a lot of medical doctors uh, do prescribe antidepressants. I think antidepressants is one of the most commonly prescribed medications uh, by uh, medical doctors. Um, you know, I don't know. I, you know, my thoughts on that. Um, if it were me, I would prefer to go to a psychiatrist. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I also recognize that there's some privilege involved with accessing a psychiatrist. Mm. Uh, it can be very difficult to get access to a psychiatrist. One, there's just like not enough. So mm-hmm. even to, to get access to one, you're waiting months upon months upon months. And then, you know, for people who are in marginalized communities, um, you know, low socioeconomic status communities, they really are not going to have a lot of access to getting like, you know, specialized care. And so Mm -hmm. their medical doctors are going to be their primary care Mm -hmm. doctors are going to be the Mm -hmm. best route for them to be Mm -hmm. able to get access. So while I don't think it's ideal that medical doctors are who Mm. maybe don't have a lot of time in that particular wheelhouse learning about those meds, um, I think it's the best route that we have right now for meeting our most, you know, marginalized communities Mm. and communities that need access to care who might need, you know, antidepressants or Mm -hmm. help with anxiety. Uh, So, it's again, it's complicated, but I, you're right. Mm-hmm. I think I think we would all be better off if if we could see psychiatrists who that's mm-hmm. their wheelhouse, right? They're experts yeah. in well, navigating even, those meds. Even psychiatrists, I, you know, I, I don't want to be extreme or polarized, or you know, yeah. but I think I think big pharma is, is a thing, and that even psychiatrists are kind of tied up in that, and so I just. I guess I guess what I would say is just um, have caution <laughs> mm-hmm. about um, 
you know, I, I think meds are, you know, they, they can be great. And if you need them, go for them. I just, I would say, you know, if, if you can find alternate ways, unnatural ways um, of, of dealing with things, then try that first and yeah. then go the med route if, if needed. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's the thing. I think a lot of people, just humans in general, we want the path of, uh, you know, least resistance. Mm, Jesus, yeah. We really don't want to work hard. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to work hard, right? Like right. I, I uh-huh. want to be lazy. I don't want to uh-huh. have to get up and work out. I don't want to mm-hmm. have to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. That's normal. Um, so anytime I have a patient that, that I am diagnosing or working with, I always tell them, I want you to think about your medication as your life raft or your mm. support. So mm-hmm. it, you need to still paddle, like you need to still, you know, try to learn coping skills. You still need to engage in psychotherapy. And we know that with all, you know, all the research shows that like the best outcomes are usually if you're doing psychotherapy with your meds, Mm. you know, but there are, there are many people who want to say, Oh, I have depression. Like, just give me the medication and I'm Mm -hmm. all good to go. Uh, and, and we know that the outcome for that is, like you said, uh, you know, 50% of people do well, 50% of people mm-hmm. don't really have a positive experience. So if, you know, medication really is supposed to be a support, you know, part of your support system. And that mm-hmm. system means uh, it's called the system because it's more than one thing, right? So it should mm-hmm. include like looking at your environment, looking at your daily habits, looking at your psychology, uh, doing the work that's going to help improve your daily living. And the medication can help you get those behaviors happening on a regular routine. So for Mm. example, for ADHD, like Adderall is not going to help me like pay my bills. Like I still have to like write, use a calendar. I still have to use timers. I still have to set expectations for myself Mm -hmm. to practice increasing my neurotransmitters on my own. So the medication helps me get in the gym every day. It helps me to keep track of my calendar. It helps me to make sure I'm not just eating like cereal every day that I'm like going grocery shopping, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the medication on, on its own, um, it will help, but it's not going to help you as well as engaging in the behaviors and in doing the deep work of understanding yourself better. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've covered covered a lot. Is there uh, areas you think we missed? Do you, you have some more to say? Uh, yeah, I think you know one of the things we talked about before the call. I guess I'll just kind of finish with this. Um, mm-hmm. Is that when we're thinking about mental health conditions and big pharma and systems, right? Psychology mm-hmm. is focused on individual people, but we live, we, we work in a system that is geared towards population, the population, mm-hmm. not individual people. And that's just out of necessity because we have to have a framework in order to be able to meet the most amount of people as possible. And so unfortunately within that framework, we're working based on statistics 
that capture the norm, which is about 70% of the population. And that means that 30% of people are not going to fall within that range of experiences. And so the goal is to recognize that every clinician is doing the best that they can to try to meet people where they're at. And if you feel like you're not being understood or the medication isn't working or you don't fit within that average range, then that's a really good sign to, you know, talk to your doctor or find a new doctor or find a new therapist, but you are your greatest advocate. Um, Doctors are limited in what they can and cannot do. And that's based on insurance companies and, and, and just the number of people that they have to see. But I know that for the most part, nobody gets into this field uh, with the goal of, of harming anybody or ignoring people. Everybody wants to meet people where they're at. Mm. But ultimately, you are your biggest advocate. So you have to get in tune with what you need and, and really work on how to communicate that. And if you're not sure how to communicate that, that's a great place to start with your therapist, you know, is how do I communicate to my doctor that I'm not happy? Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I will, that's great. I guess that's a good, pl- good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for all your wisdom and uh, knowledge and stuff like that. I appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for having me again, Kendall. 